Welcome to the 9 to 5 podcast, brought to you by Worklight, a ministry uniting Christians to shine bright in the workplace. We hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome. This is a a wonderful day to be exploring another podcast guest here on the Worklight podcast. Very excited today to be joined by Ben Rhodes, who uh, I playfully refer to as Ben the Theologian. Ben is a father of two teenagers, which keeps him busy on one front. He and his wife have been married for about 20 years. He also spent about 20 years, not the exact same 20 years, but with some overlap, working in the medical devices industry, many of those years at Medtronic here in the uh, Twin Cities, but has made a significant shift in his life, professionally speaking, to study theology at the University of Aberdeen, where he is currently working on his thesis for a PhD. So that's going to be something we're certainly going to touch on in today's conversation. And kind of a fun historical note, Ben was born in Louisiana. For those of you who are geography fans, he was born in Louisiana, lived in Oklahoma, and eventually found his way all the way up here to Minnesota. So you could kind of trace his life along the Great River in the middle of our country here in the United States. And I have the pleasure of knowing Ben through my Worklight small group. So we'll try to keep the banter fairly simple on today's call, although he and I have certainly gotten pretty deep in our relationship in Christ and very grateful for that. And last but not least, one of the things that I think is really cool about Ben is that he is a hobby carpenter, and he offered quite some time ago to help me build some bookshelves for my house, and I'm still hoping to take him up on that offer sometime sooner rather than later, but that conversation will be for another time. So thank you so much, Ben, for joining us today. Thanks for having me. We're going to start with just a quick prayer to kind of set the intention for this time together. Dear Lord, thank you so much for this day and this time in your creation. For those of us who are listening, thank you for the time that we have to set aside to listen and reflect. And for those of us, you know, being Ben and myself here in this conversation, thank you for the opportunity to have conversations like these and to dive into the conversations and interactions and sometimes messiness of what it means to really seek Christ in our everyday life, especially in our workplaces and what that looks like and feels like. And we pray, Lord, that you help us draw closer to you in each of these steps and each of these conversations, and that we become closer together as well as brothers and sisters in Christ. Come Holy Spirit. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Ben, I gave a little bit of your history away by you know, talking about your 20 years of marriage and your journey up the Mississippi and your two kids. You know, and I, I mentioned that you have a background in medical devices, but you're yeah. currently studying theology. I'm wondering mm-hmm. if you could start just by telling us a little bit about this journey professionally and as a Christian from growing up and studying in school and having a pretty big career shift from medical devices to theology. I grew up in a Christian home, took my faith very, very seriously, very early on. You know, not all faith groups talk about things in terms of a call, like being called into ministry or things like that. But my faith community did, and I certainly felt a call to ministry somewhere around 11th grade, so when I was a junior in high school. But I also knew that it wasn't a normal call. It wasn't like the call to be a pastor. I'm not pastoral at all. And so this, the thought of being a pastor just kind of makes my teeth ache. I thought that maybe it would be something like medical missions or, you know, something like that, some sort of ministry that looks like 
something really important, but not necessarily like full-time ministry. I went to college to become an engineer. And in college, I was part of a, a Christian campus organization. And that organization went to a big collegiate Christian conference. And at that conference, a theology professor came and spoke. And I had never heard anyone talk like that before. My faith tradition was sort of anti-intellectual, or at least, you know, marginally kind of flirted with, with thinking about Christianity in a really structured intellectual sense. And seeing this guy talk like, I couldn't believe what I was hearing. It was amazing. So as I got to looking at that more and more, um, finished my degree, my engineering degree, decided to not go to med school, got a job as a medical device designer. And lo and behold, there's a seminary down the street. So I audited a course at the seminary and loved it. Just absolutely loved it. And decided to get my master's degree in theology while I was there and loved every minute of it. This was as you were starting your career in the medical devices industry? Yeah, absolutely. I had been an engineer designing medical devices for only about two years when I started seminary full-time. Well, not full-time. I was a part-time student, but mm-hmm. I was working on my degree by that point. And I uh, loved every minute of it and decided to continue into getting the doctorate with the hopes of teaching theology, either at a church as like resident theologian or as an assistant professor or whatever. Making this passion for Christianity and for thinking about God and Christ and ethics and how we live in the world in robust ways, just making it real to our everyday life. I may be learning a little more about your timeline than I even knew. To me, it's almost like two different chapters, the way we all simplify things in our heads, right? I think of you as, oh, you used to work in device sales, and now you study theology. But you know, you're making it more clear now than ever that it's not like you stopped being a Christian to go to work for 16 years and then you came back to it. I happen to know from some of our conversations that one of the aspects of work in the secular world I find really interesting that you've really dug into is conversations with non-Christians. I'm wondering both to kind of flesh out this weaving, almost braid, if you will, of your technical career in medical devices and your Christian career, so to speak, as a theologian, if you could speak a little more about that and also touch on how in the, the secular world you've come to have somewhat of a practice of, of speaking with non-Christians about Christianity and all that comes with it, or maybe some that comes with it. Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. From the earliest parts of my career, I was in seminary. And, you know, being in the sciences, so I worked in a facility that was over 90% of us are engineers or scientists. And there was a fair number of, of atheists, of non-believers in the facility where I worked. And so just as a matter of day-to-day, you know, rubbing elbows with people, I would form these relationships with, with people who were unbelievers. And we'd sit down and talk about things at lunch. And as one thing led to another, we kind of got serious and talking about faith. That move for me was not something I particularly sought out. It was just something that happened organically. And talking to them and hearing their objections and wrestling with them, not only through the schoolwork that I was doing, but also personally, some of the challenges that they had for Christianity, I, I feel like are wise and smart pushbacks against the way that Christians often operate and believe. And so just sitting with them, hearing their pushbacks, taking them seriously, learning not only my own faith, how do I actually think about that? Do they have a point? Should I really reconsider how this works? Because that just seems silly in light of the critique of these, these non-believers. And at the same time, figuring out how to articulate my faith in ways that land. 
mm. if that makes any sense. Sure. Um, has been a, such an incredible part of my journey. It's something that I really, really value. And I don't know if I ever could have sought it out. It just happened by accident as part of my work and make friends. And I'm not afraid to talk about yeah. my faith. Talking and listening. It sounds like kind of a balance to build those relationships. It'd work like we talk and, and work and host events and encourage relationships around storytelling, knowing, of course, that storytelling is a significant part of the Bible, to say the least, whether it's in that context of talking to non-Christians or perhaps in, in you know, your context of studying theology, from your perspective, what is the magic of storytelling? Why does that have such a profound impact on us as Christians, certainly, but also as human beings? A guy by the name of Dan McAdams wrote a book called The Stories We Live By. He's a psychologist. And his argument in that book is that there are basically, and I forget the number, maybe it's seven. There are seven basic stories that every human tells themselves that organizes and structures their life. And those stories, we, we hang everything, we fit everything into those stories, and we accept and reject information based on those stories. I think that story is fundamental to who we are as creatures. And whether you're a believer or an unbeliever, this all hangs on the story that we tell ourselves. And as Christians, we tell ourselves a story about how we are fundamentally made in the image of God and yet incredibly warped and are everyday people who are in need of a savior. And so our lives are oriented around living in the, as the imitations of Christ as we try to follow our savior in the everyday. Non-believers have their own stories that they tell themselves. I think that for me, you're absolutely right, listening to their story and not challenging their story, right? It's not my job to convince them of something else. That's the Holy Spirit's job, but rather to present an alternative to say, wow, that's, that's really interesting the way that you put that together. I put it together this way. This is what yeah. it looks like. And this is how I structure this to make sense. Being able to tell those stories non-anxiously right? Without really needing to convince anyone that mine's better than theirs or whatever. I think that that's a key part of mm. the work that I've entered into. And I also think about first century Christianity, right? So Jesus came and he lived in a society where there were lots of competing religions. There was Caesar worship. There was worship of the Greek and Roman gods. There was worship of, there were some Eastern influences that had come in. So there was plenty of articles have been written on the Hindu influence that may have been in mm. Palestine at the time. Christianity flourished in a world full of competing stories. The trick is, how do we tell those stories in an attractive way? I think that Christians get hung up so often in the superiority of their story. Now, I do think Christianity is superior to other religions, but I'm not so arrogant and egotistical to think that it's my job to convince someone else of that. Mm. It's my job to tell my story. And that story involves hardship and belief and seeing things that I can't describe and having a hope that transcends the uh, kind of craziness of the world. Can't quite think of the author, but there was, there was a book that my brother recommended recently that was about how parents, our job is not to know the answers and tell our kids what they need to know. As parents, our job is to be ambassadors of Christ. It's not our job to tell the story perfectly. It's our job to tell the story in a way that gives the Holy Spirit kind of a, an inroad, right? To create space for the Spirit to work and to operate. The 9 to 5 podcast is brought to you by Worklight, a workplace ministry that tells stories of Christ in the workplace. To hear more stories and find encouragement, 
visit our website at worklight.org. There was a phrase you mentioned that I'd love to go back to. You talked about imitations of Christ. We as imperfect beings seek to imitate a perfect being. It's this sort of, you could call it the beauty. You could also call it the absurdity of being a Christian. And we at, at Worklight talk about even seeking to be Christ in the workplace, to really push that imitation of Christ, to change our practices of professionalism and relationship and leadership and servitude. I'd just love for you to kind of talk a bit about what that looked like professionally in, in medical devices and what it looks like for you professionally now to be a Christian who seeks to imitate Christ, knowing that that's not an actual achievable goal, but it's something that you are in a sense, playing out. You're telling your story day to day, not because you're doing it perfectly or right, but because you're, you're seeking to honor God and to seek a life in the Spirit as best as you can. There are so many ways to tackle that. Let's be blunt. So in the tradition that I grew up in, our pastors like to say stuff like, the answer to every question you'll ever ask is in the Bible. Whenever I showed up at work and they said, here's a problem that no one else has solved before, we need to make a medical device that solves this problem. You can't flip to Ecclesiastes and find the answer to that, right? Like the answers to those questions aren't in. Are you sure I haven't I haven't read Ecclesiastes recently? Isn't there's no medical devices? <laughs> there's, I, you know, I've read Ecclesiastes. It's not in there, but maybe maybe it's in Revelation. I don't know. I, I thought it might be buried in in Numbers somewhere. <laughs> there, you <go. laughs> there you go. If you could get through Leviticus, maybe it's in there. So, of course, we're using the principles of math and science and the language of a different world than Jesus lived in to answer the sort of questions that I had to deal with on a daily basis as an engineer. And at the same time, the question is, so what does Christ mean for this world? Hmm. What does it mean to be a follower of Christ in a world where the language is math and science that we speak every day? And the answer to that for me is the imitation of Christ, not in the sense that I'm, I'm leaving everything and adopting this sort of semi-nomadic life of a rabbi where I'm wandering around and attracting followers. Like, that's not, that's not my life. But instead, Jesus talks about in the book of John over and over and over again about how everything he does is what he sees his father doing. And just as the father is working, he's working too. And so the question becomes like, what, if God was designing medical devices, what would that look like? The answer to me is this fundamental orientation towards life. I'm designing products that save people's lives, and I'm very fortunate for that to have been my career path. There's a certain ethics that's involved in that. Like, I don't say good enough, right? Mm -hmm. I say, no, this has to be safe, and it has to reach a certain level of safety for this. I've got to always be looking at the patient first, not the business bottom line, because there are trade-offs that can be made on that front all day. I can sacrifice some safety of my device to save the company money, millions of dollars even. Sure. That's just not worth it. So for me, those are the sort of ethical decisions that end up getting made, and those are driven out of my faith. I think God has an incredibly high regard for life. And so if I'm following Christ, which means that I'm doing what I see my father doing, always having an incredibly high regard for life. That's my fellow coworker. That's the patient that's going to use my product. That's the doctor that's going to implant it. Those are the stockholders that are part of how the company operates, right? Like right. how do I balance all of that stuff? And there's no formula for it. It's just a daily questioning of how do I be the best follower and imitator of Christ that I can be today? Yeah, that's, that's quite a journey. It sounds like it's, it's probably been 
I would imagine quite a blessing to have, uh, in a sense, a, a perspective, but that sort of depth and theological perspective on your experience in the workplace. And you mentioned the Gospel of John. You know, I have a little insider information here that that may be an area of your study, perhaps even a chapter of your thesis. I'd be curious to hear a little bit about how that process reflects similar values of wanting to follow your father, wanting to act out life as a Christian. You know, how does that transfer to your studies and your writing and this work that you're doing as a Moltmann scholar on the Gospel of John? Well, let me just talk a little bit about my dissertation for a second before sure. we jump into the, the Gospel of John. The dissertations are mostly focused on theological work that's already been done. So what you tend to do is you pick a theologian and you interact with that theologian's work and you kind of point out how it works well and where it doesn't work well and you try to amend it or supplement it or just solidly poke holes in it or, or things like that. So my theologian is Jürgen Moltmann. He was German. Uh, he's still living. I think he just turned 95. He, was, wow. he fought in World War II. was an atheist. Uh, was a third generation atheist, he says in his biography and was captured as a prisoner of war and converted to Christianity in, the, in a prisoner of war camp. And one of the top three most prominent theologians after World War II. If you know much about post-World War II theology, his name is breathed just about as often as anyone else's. Moltmann talks about things basically as hope. That's fundamentally what Christianity does, is it gives us hope. My issue with that is that hope is always something that lives off in the future. Hope is always something that you hope for, right? It always exists ahead of you. But the way that I read scripture is that scripture is often concerned about things that are happening right now. And so being hopeful, eventually, you know, Wes, if you came to me and said, I'm going to make you a promise and I want you to hope in that promise and that promise, I'm going to fulfill it way off in the future, right? Like I'm going to finally deliver on that promise way off in the future eventually hope sort of starts to run dry for me that you're going to deliver on that, right? So like like the bookshelves, right? So you generously offered to help me build some bookshelves, and I'm yet to actually take you up on that. I hope to. I genuinely hope to, but right. it's not something that I know. Like I don't have a date. I don't have a plan. I don't, you know, I'm just hoping. Yeah. Or, or you know, if you would have promised me a, I don't know if you do art, but if you if you've promised me a piece of art, uh -huh. Or you promised that you would do this podcast with me, and you just kept promising it, but you never actually delivered on it. Eventually, I'd give up hope that that was ever sure. going to happen. That's sure. a normal human response. My critique of Moltmann is that's essentially what happens if we ignore our frustrations of the present. And so I'm hoping to retrieve an idea of the present so that everything is not just future-oriented, it's also oriented to our, our current experience. And that's where mm. things like the book of John comes in. The Gospel of John, I think, is incredibly oriented towards the experience of would-be disciples in the present day. And so it's incredibly interested in questions of discipleship and how do we go through this and how do we, in a post-resurrection world, how do we maintain our faith in light of current challenges? So as a part of that, I developed six paradigms for discipleship out of the Gospel of John. Yeah, and, and in a sense, post-resurrection means 100 CE and it means yesterday at the same time. Obviously, those contexts are different. There's more people speaking in math and science today than there were back then, but they're both post-resurrection and that's shared context, I would assume, of what you're diving that's into. Right. 
That's right. And what, you know, one of the big points that I make is what ended up happening, you can even see this happening in the book of John, where when the man born blind was healed, the Jewish leadership assembled to interview him, to sort of interrogate him over like, what happened? Who was it that did this to you? And were you actually blind or are you making this up? As a product of that conversation, they ejected him from the temple, from the synagogue, and sort of ejected him from the community as well. I think about that a lot in math and science. You know, when you don't speak the language of math and science, instead you adopt this language of religion, you can get ejected from communities. So many of my coworkers were atheists. To speak the language of religion is to be rejected. So those sort of challenges of discipleship are the same today as they were back then. Maybe some of the details are different, sure. but there is so much about the Gospel of John that's still applicable today as to how you deal with the challenges of discipleship. We just have a couple minutes left, but could you squeeze in a little more commentary? I know you mentioned there were six elements or aspects that you were exploring in the Gospel of John. Yeah, I think that the big innovation that I have with the Gospel of John is, again, how stories get put together. So let's just start there for a second. If you read the story of Nicodemus, he is a leader of the Jews. He comes to Jesus at night and he says to Jesus, no one could do the things that you do if you weren't from God. Mm -hmm. So help me understand what this is and what you're all about. And as Nicodemus and Jesus started to have this conversation, there was just confusion was the result. Mm. And Jesus walks away from Nicodemus and basically leaves him behind. Now, we know later that Nicodemus became a disciple, but in the context of that story as it stands, it just ended with confusion. Right. Nicodemus' right. training and his standing in the community and his leadership of the Jews, his intelligence, his, the fact that he was a Jew, those things did not keep him from misunderstanding Jesus. Yeah. And then you flip a couple of pages in the book, and Jesus comes to this woman at this well, this Samaritan woman at the well, and they have a conversation. Mm-hmm. And what ends up happening as a result of that conversation is Jesus stays with her in the Samaritan village for three days. Hmm. Very different than the end of the Nicodemus story. (laughs) Absolutely. It's almost the complete opposite. Nicodemus showed up in the middle of the night. Woman at the well showed up in the middle of the day. Nicodemus was a Jew. This woman was a Samaritan. Nicodemus was a morally upstanding individual. The Samaritan woman was morally questionable. Nicodemus was a man. The Samaritan was a woman. Like We could go on and on as to how this is almost the perfect reversal of what Nicodemus was. And so part of the message of the Gospel of John is like, look, not being respectable in the community is not an impediment to the Gospel. Mm. It's not an impediment to coming and understanding Jesus. And as a matter of fact, being married to the status quo, being married to respectability and to all this knowledge and all this being a leader, that can be an impediment (laughs) to Jesus staying with you. One of the things that I talk about is all these reversals. One of them is the function of status, how status can really get in the way of us seeing Jesus. Another one is how we hold our faith. Do we want to see to believe? Is seeing believing? Or is testimony the way that we get to faith? I think the Gospel of John argues that testimony is superior to sight in almost every way. I talk about the place of tradition. A lot of times we hold traditions as these firm, almost concrete expectations of how God will operate. But Jesus continues to show up in the Gospel of John over and over and over again and violates people's expectations and still expects that they see who he is, holding our expectations much more flexibly. 
And then kind of finally, you know, talking about the place of making a decision. I think that a lot of times, especially with the non-believers that I worked with, they wanted to kind of hold out on a decision. They needed more evidence. They needed more information. They needed to think about it more. But I think that the Gospel of John put some urgency behind the reality of making a decision. That doesn't mean we don't revisit it as being a disciple. Gosh, we're constantly revisiting the questions that we have as it pertains to Jesus. And yet we can't stay neutral. We've got to pick a side. And so John really puts pressure on everyone who wants to consider whether or not they're a disciple to actually make a decision. What side are you landing on? And so those are kind of the paradigms for discipleship that I'm exploring in the Gospel of John. And I think that they're as applicable today as they ever were. It certainly sounds like it. For those of us who have the privilege of working you know, in the Christian world or even with Christian colleagues, to those of us who are working in, in math and science, perhaps with non-believers, I mean, that, that decision to seek Christ, that decision that we make, certainly in, in certain big ceremonial ways, but most of all that we make every day when we wake up and when we spend time seeking His will and, and His grace in our lives. That's a, a wonderful reminder for us all. I'm sure it was just as relevant 1980 yeah. years ago as it is now. This has been fantastic, Ben. I'm so glad that, that we were able to talk today, and I really appreciate you lending your multifaceted experiences and expertise to this conversation. Really grateful that you were able to join us and that we were able to have this conversation. I'd love to just close with a quick prayer, and, and I'll look forward to seeing you next week at our Workplace small group. <laughs> hey, thank you so much for having me. This was fun. God, thank you for this time together. Thank you for the reminder to take that next step, big or small as it might be, to discipleship, knowing that we don't have to be a person of status to approach you, knowing that we can come to you day or night, but that at the core of it, Lord, you invite us to, to make this decision to choose Christ and to choose it in our day-to-day -day life, to choose it in our families, to choose it in our study of the word, to choose it in our workplace, in our professional seeking. We give glory to your name and we thank you for this time we've had together today and ask that Jesus, you just help us to shine your light in our workplaces. We lift all of this up in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening. To learn more about Worklight, please visit our website at worklight.org, where we are continuously providing tools and resources to support you living your faith at work.